Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. Remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. Over this weekend, well, first of all, I've been falling asleep for like the last four months at like 9 or 9.30. I don't know why. But occasionally if I have a show, I have to stay up late. But this weekend, for some reason, I couldn't fall asleep. And around at 1.30, I was still up. And I started watching Curling. Now, I did not know how long a curling match takes. I put it on Facebook. Some people said it takes two hours. I'm going to tell you, I started watching the U.S. gold medal game. And, you know, I wanted to watch it because, you know, it was something that people were excited about. But it ended up, I think I got to bed at 4.30, which I threw my whole weekend off. And I still think I'm catching up from that bad sleep uh, this weekend. But they won, so it made it all good. Anyway, we have a great show today. My uh, my, my guest is, you know, he's a legend. I can say he's a legendary comic, and he's, he's a legend at Emerson. And he's just, uh, he's a funny guy. Worked on Letterman for years. Still booking stuff, booking festivals. My guest is Eddie Brill. How you doing, Eddie? I'm good, Steve. How you doing? Good. Now, did, were you an Olympic guy? Did you watch the Olympics, or is this not your cup of tea? <clears throat> well, it's funny that you would mention that, because the other night was the uh, women's hockey final for the gold, and they were playing Canada, and that, that was something that came on around 11.30 at night, and uh, ended up, <clears throat> you know, I was up to like 2.33 watching it. It was a very exciting game, and then I couldn't sleep because I was so excited and I was up till four, and it screwed up my whole week. You know, it's very similar. I know it's weird. Like, and it's it's, it's weird as you know you want like this was one of the first times in the, in the Olympics for a while that we sat there, and usually there's such a big different time difference that there's a time difference here, but it, our time difference synced here. Usually, it's like you can't even go on your computer because you knew exactly what happened. You know, it was like when Michael Phelps won. Oh goes, yeah, you look. This was the yeah. one where the the games were live, and for me, I'm thinking if I was back on the West Coast, I would have had normal sleep. But it's just it's crazy. So um, I know, and you know, four years ago, I think it was four years ago or eight years ago, <clears throat> the I was I, I'm a big hockey fan, so I was watching uh, listening to the. Um, I didn't get to see it, but I heard it live, the hockey game, the, the, the final back then, and I was in L.A., so it was weird because I had to, like, start at, like, four in the morning. I had to set my alarm, <laughs> you know, to wake up to be able to watch the hockey game. Now, now you're a big hockey game. You're a big hockey guy. Now, I, I know, I believe you were raised in Florida, but you were born in New York. Are, are you a Rangers guy? Or are you an Islanders guy or a yeah, Devils guy? Who are you? I'm a Rangers guy. Um, when I was a little kid, the, <clears throat> it was a magic year, 1969, 1970, where the New York Mets, my team, won the World Series on my birthday. The um, New York Knicks won the championship, and I got to go to the championship game. The um, New York Jets won the Super Bowl. And the New York Rangers, who had a lot of you know problems winning the Stanley Cup until uh, 1994, they actually had gone to the semifinals. So it was a great year to be a kid and have all those great sports teams do really well. Isn't it great when you go through Because I grew up, you know, a huge Philadelphia fan. And just the Eagles winning the Super Bowl this year, the year I moved back, made it so much more special because I could share it with friends. I could go to the parade. And it's something that yes. we never really – we never remember, like, what sports – meant to us and it's funny because I know a lot of comedians are big sports fans and I don't know if it's because when we were young we, I mean I love sports but I don't know what happened I don't I mean there must be a transition I mean what made you get interested in comedy because you were a big sports fan as a kid I mean I knew every stat 
but then I also would watch comedy yeah, on TV. What, what got you... I don't know. I mean, you know, my my parents had comedy albums around the house. And, uh, you know, we they, they were very funny people, my parents. And we loved going to comedy shows. And, you know, but one, one thing I remember very specifically... We were, uh, my sister and I were in a uh, hotel room we were being uh, babysat for, and my parents, I think it was in Las Vegas, um, it was somewhere, I, I, Las Vegas, and my par- our parents had gone to see Buddy Hackett, um, so when they, when it was over, they came into the room laughing and loving each other, and you could just see how happy they were, because they laughed so hard. And then, you know, years later I thought about it. They had, Not only were they laughing, but they watched the show. They laughed whatever during the show. They paid the bill. They got up. They went through the lobby. They went, it was, uh, they went up the elevator, and they were still laughing. And I always, I never saw my parents happier in my whole life. And it really made a difference. And, you know, I wanted to always make my mom laugh like that. And, and we still, my mom and I were very close, and... And it was really fun to make her laugh, and we shared our love of comedy. I never thought I'd do it for a living. I just thought, you know, this is uh, this is this is really fun. And you know, I saw George Carlin on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and that made a big uh, difference in my life. And you know, a little bit, a lot of little things came together. Then I went to Emerson, you know, to study uh, broadcasting and maybe do some journalism, you know, broadcast journalism. And then I all of a sudden got involved with, you know, met a bunch of my first friends in college. We all thought each other was funny, and we formed a comedy group. And it, we haven't stopped since then. It's funny you say about Emerson, because, you know, when I was in L.A. for a while, I got out of the business. I was I did it in the late 80s, early 90s. Then I got out of the business, but I was in L.A., and I remember booking my friend's Italian restaurant for just like a Thursday night he wanted to get business in. And it, it astonished me that there were so many, at this time, young comedians who came from Emerson, and you were pretty much on the forefront of that. So for you, that must make you very proud that the the system really flourished. And I mean, I know after you, I believe people like Wendy Liebman went, and I don't know if you were at the same time as Ron Lynch, but I believe they're all involved in Emerson. What what was your start in Emerson? I mean, how did you get your comedy group together? And I know you, I believe, started a writing program there. I may be wrong, but that's what I read. But how did you... Well, Forge it forward. was, you know, Dennis, Dennis Leary was a year older than us. And it was a guy named David Whiteman and a, um, <clears throat> a, a Joe, this woman, Jody, who hard last name's Wallace now, and uh, but Hafner back then. And uh, there was one other person. They had a little four-person comedy group the year before we had gone to Emerson. Then um, my freshman year, uh, Dennis and, and Jody and David, they try to form this little group called the Emerson Comedy Workshop. Um, so I saw a poster for it, and I went for it, and I met everyone who became my best friends for the rest of my life uh, at that meeting. We did some improv and some sketch, and then, you know, eventually we would perform at the college and do that, and uh, it was really great. <clears throat> the school wasn't really backing us, and uh, Norman Lear, who had graduated Emerson, had uh, come to the school. You know, a lot of people before us had done comedy. There, there was nothing. Before my class went, there was Jay Leno and um, Andrea Martin and uh, Bill Dana, and on and on and on of people who had been to Emerson for comedy. But it wasn't something you could take at Emerson. 
Well, when Norman Lear came by the school, I talked to him and had a conversation with him about what we were doing, and he seemed to uh, think it was terrific, and he supported us by uh, donating some money to the school, and the school matched it, and we had our first, the very first comedy writing department there at Emerson. And as the years have gone by, nowadays, um, I go back there and I teach once a year, at least once a year, and there's a you can major in comedy, uh, comedy writing and comedy performance at Emerson. Um, Wendy and Ron Lynch, both amazing comedians and friends, but they didn't go to Emerson. They were just in that great Boston scene. Now, Stephen Wright was with us in school, and he would do stand-up, and we would see him, and, you know, it was, um, it was just a great community. There was a bunch of local comics like Ron Lynch and Wendy and uh, Steve Sweeney and, uh, you know, Don Gavin, Kenny Rogerson, Kevin Meany. You know, so it was, it, it's, I guess it's a product of, you know, the, the who's around and what um, one of the, the keys really was the Barry Crimmins ran this comedy club in Inman Square in Cambridge called the Ding Ho. And we a lot of us got an opportunity to uh, to do stand up there. It was really nice. When did you first get on stage? Because, you know, you seemed like you were you're the comedy group was at Emerson. When did you decide that you were going to start doing stand up and how did you go about it? Little by little, I, you know, like at the, in the comedy workshop uh, shows that we would do, I'd sort of host the event, you know, each show, come out and welcome everyone. or And I, it was kind of fun because I would get some laughs. I didn't really write stand-up, but it was kind of nice. And then all of a sudden, you know, um, a bunch of us decided to try stand-up, uh, mainly because of our friends, the people we knew, and, um, you know, of course, like I said, Stephen Wright was doing stand-up. Uh, Mario Cantone was doing his one-man show kind of thing. And uh, so we all gave it a shot, and, and it was really fun. And then when I graduated college, I thought, well, that was fun, and that was great. Now i got to move back to New York and, and get a real job and a real life. And I started doing some writing for advertising and stuff like that, and uh, but also my friends I had went to school with were all continually doing stand-up. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to get... In 1984, an opportunity came for me to um, um, run a comedy club in the village in New York. And uh, I started... We started a Sunday night show there in the summer of 84. And uh, it became ended up becoming this um, very popular weekend comedy club called The Paper Moon. And I was running it, and Colin Quinn, the comedian, was helping me run it. And a lot of Emerson people had, you know, like Dennis and Mario, and they'd come and visit, and they'd come and do spots. And through Colin, I met Susie Essman, and, and you know, I hosted the shows every weekend. And it just, I loved it like crazy. I missed it. I didn't realize how much I missed it. And I haven't stopped since July of 84. When you were hosting the shows, because, you know, a lot of times when you host a show and there's a lot of acts, you, you end up doing a lot of crowd work. Were you constantly trying to write material, or were you, were you one of these people that when you started out, because you were hosting and you know you have good, you know, there's a good crowd coming in, you know you're going to get laughs if you have talent. Were you really writing material, or were you just going off the cuff and doing a lot of crowd work in the early days? In the early days, I was doing a lot of material. I, I played the guitar a little bit on stage and was, you know, I was writing, my best friend Chris Phillips and I were, were writing a bunch of little comedy songs. And so I would do a little bit of that. I would do some impressions. I would, I worked the crowd a little bit, but it wasn't, 
it wasn't really my forte. We were very close to Paula Poundstone, who started in Boston back in that time, and she's the best person I've ever seen working a crowd. And I would marvel at her. And then one time, years later, I was with her in San Francisco, and I just really loved the way she worked the crowd. And, and that was the, only then is when I started trying to work the crowd. And um, nowadays, you know, I, that's one of my favorite things to do. It's not that I need to do it, but I love to do it. And it, it's really nice because it forces you to keep your brain open and your heart open. And it also is uh, that sort of risk taking that is very powerful in comedy. And, and it's, 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 I, when you write material, it's great. And when it works well, a line works or something, that, that's really fun. But when you can ad lib and play, and, and make everyone comfortable and also laugh. I did a show, you know, a week ago in uh, North Carolina during a comedy festival, and I ended up doing an hour and a half. I didn't realize how much I had done, and probably 45 minutes of it was crowd work. It was really fun. Now, in 84, when you started that club, the comedy scene started to pretty much boom. What was it like in New York then? Because you booked a club, was it easier for you to get in other clubs and get stage time during a week? Or was it harder because people said, you know, he books this other club, he's he's the competition? Yeah, I had a little bit of that. You know, there was, you know, they they looked at us, they looked at myself as a, as a booker. And, you know, I was, I, I was paying the comedians more than the other clubs. And, you know, they were a little bit bummed out about that. And they, I suffered for stage time um i was doing pretty well you know i wasn't great but then all of a sudden i started um getting some television stuff and some and then all of a sudden people were were warming up to having me work at a club i remember i, I auditioned for star search and they asked me i was working the bitter end and claudia mcmahon Ed mcmahon's daughter happened to be there and she said you know we're doing auditions in a couple of weeks at um, the comic strip in New York, and if you'd like to audition, we'd really like to have you audition. So I had never worked, I had never passed at the comic strip, and you know they they were another one of these clubs who were a little bit hesitant to book me because I was running the comedy club. But I went on stage and I just had one of these sets that you dream about, and the show of course asked me to be on the show, and the owner of the comedy club or the booker had uh, said, okay, hey, you want to work with us and work for us, so. It worked out pretty good. And then there was a club that was opening called Stand Up New York, and the owner of that club, um, he had had a meeting with me to ask, you know, to get some advice on how to run a club. So he was very good to me in booking me. And then little by little, Catch a Rising Star started booking me. And so I then, I, you know, then they treated me as a comic more than a booker, which was really nice. Now, the comedy shows back then, I mean, were you on, uh, what was it? What was that show with Bill Boggs? Was that Comedy Tonight? Were you on like what show? Yeah, what yeah. What I sh- never did that show. Right? What shows were you doing? Because there was so much comedy back then. I know there's comedy on the road, A and E, Comic Strip Live, all these things. What was your first? Yeah, TV- Caroline's Comedy Hour. I did. I, you know, I, I did all those kind of shows, and there was uh, so, so see, Star Search was the first thing I did, and I think Caroline's Comedy Hour was the next thing I did, and then Comedy Central came about, and then I started doing like things like Two Drink Minimum and. And all their little shows that they had that were comedy oriented, and it was great for us as comics to learn from you know doing television. And um, you know, but but Star Search was big for me because it got me out to L.A. 
And I auditioned for the comedy store and the improv and sort of passed, uh, you know, meaning I was able to work either club. And I started going back and forth out to L.A. during that time and was running the comedy club in New York at the same time. But it became a little tough. So I gave that up in 88 and started pretty much living out both New York and L.A. starting around the end of 86, beginning of 87. And then um, <clears throat> in 1989, I went out to London to go visit a friend of mine whose um, wife gave birth prematurely to their child. And um, I started going on stage in London while I was visiting, and that became huge for me. And it just kept building and building. And I was starting to do television in Europe, and it just was really, really, really fun. And I was auditioning for Letterman during those days, but I never got it. And then eventually I auditioned for Letterman, and I got it in 1997. Um, uh, it was around 95, 96 when they said, you know, we're going to use you. And I ended up getting a job at Letterman in 97. And then uh, that same year, they put me on uh, on television. And I think it was October, September of 97 was the first time I did my first, like, big network show. Although Star Search was network, but that, you know, was not like, you know, the big Letterman show. Do you remember who you were against in Star Search, and did you win the first time? Um, my friend Sue Kalinsky, who's still my friend, she beat me. And I was kind of surprised. I thought I had a, a better set, but, you know, looking back, it didn't really matter. I got great exposure, and, you know, it was really fun, and, you know, it was, uh, it got me to L.A. That was the key. You know, because Star Search is sort of like a game show in a sense. And, uh, you know, good for that. It got me television. It got, you know, there's millions of people watching. So, and it gave me the confidence that I could pull that off and do well in front of a, a television audience. The funny thing. I'm a, ham, a bit of a ham growing up. So it was really nice to be able to focus that and create a, a, a comedy set for television. The funny thing about Star Search is it was always like, I think it was like a two minute set or something, which it, it must yeah. be, it must be so hard because even, you know, even if you're doing short sets that are like seven or 10 minutes, two minutes, when you think about two minutes, if you do, you know, nowadays, because so many people do storytelling comedy, they wouldn't be able to do a two minute set. How, how do you, how did you prepare for a two minute set? Because it's like, you think about it, two minutes. And now you're probably nervous because it's your first time on TV, like a big shot on TV. But how does someone prepare for a two-minute set? Yeah, it's, it's very hard. You, and you, you just got to think of it as like an art piece. Like, here's my two-minute piece. You give it a beginning, middle, and end. The key, really, in any short set is to not try to rush, to try to squeeze as much material as you can in that short time. The key is to just really be comfortable uh, set it, like I said, set it up, have it, have a beginning, middle, and end. And, uh, you know, it goes by in a flash, but if you have that confidence, that sort of swagger, that, um, that comfortability in the silence and, um, you know, that nonverbal communication stuff, uh, you can pull it off. And, uh, so it was fun. I mean, as nervous as I was, as any human being would be to do television, it seemed like that was where I belonged, and I loved it. So that won over the nervousness more than anything. When I did the show, it was like, oh, this is awesome. This is what I want to do. Now, you said you, Letterman was in 97. Now, how many times did you audition before you got it, and, and were you getting frustrated? Because, you know, and, and was that one of your... Uh, 
shots you really wanted to do? Did you really want to do the Letterman show? And were you getting frustrated? Well, I wanted to do the Tonight Show. I wanted, to, you know, that was more important to me at the time. Um, but I had never gotten an audition for it. But I knew if you worked at the comedy store that they would see you. And it just never, that never came up for me, the Tonight Show. It, it just wasn't, it, it, it's funny because I, I forgot what year it was, but I did the Montreal Comedy Festival a few times. And one year I did it, the guy who had booked the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, uh, Macaulay, his name, with last name, Jim Macaulay, he had come up to me, you know, now the Carson show was over, and he said, damn, I wish I would have seen you because I would have put you on the Carson show in a second. I'm like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, man. It's just timing-wise, I just wasn't in the right place. But I had auditioned a couple of times for Letterman. I think it was two times. And one time I was in Boston working, and they had a Letterman audition. And um, Robert Morton was there looking at comics. And I made him laugh so hard that I, he, like, fell off the chair. And I thought, wow, I got this. But I didn't get it. And there was he was always very nice to me, but he, I guess I wasn't what they, he wanted or they wanted. And then Zoe Friedman, Bud Friedman's daughter, uh, was booking the Letterman show. And she saw me and um, said nice things and, um, you know, said that they didn't, you know, because sometimes it takes uh, a year or uh, six months to, you know, do the show. And sometimes people see you and then they put you on that week. It, it just happened to be that they were interested. She was interested in me doing the show. Um, I was working doing a bunch of warm-up shows. I was the warm-up for the Dana Carvey show. And and then all of a sudden, Louis C.K., who was working at the show at the time, was a writer there. They asked um, if, any, if they knew anyone because they needed a warm-up person for the show. And I was recommended because Louis worked on the Dana Carvey show where I warmed up. And I got that job. And it, it sort of all came together, coalesced to where I was getting ready to do the show. And I started working there as a warm-up. And uh, and pretty much right away, I got offered to do the set. And then I got bumped because the show ran long. Um, but then in September of, of that year, I got to be on it. And it was such a thrill. So, I mean, the Ed Sullivan Theater, you know, and you have the Beatles and Elvis Presley and the Supremes, and you're on that stage, and, and the lights are bright, and the audience is there. And I had a very nice set, so it was very... Very proud moment. It's funny. I've heard different stories of people getting bumped, and I've heard, you know, when Freddie Stoller did the show for the first time. There's just so many different stories that go with Letterman, which it is like one of those, it is a comedy mecca, you know, especially, I mean, a lot of us grew up watching Carson, but after Carson left, we watched Letterman. I mean, that's just the way it was right. for me. And I mean, in college, I watched Letterman. My girlfriend was a big Letterman fan. And it's just funny when you hear the different comic stories. Now, when you were getting that first Letterman gig, you were doing warm-up, so they were familiar with you. Which, now, with warm-up, yeah. would you ever do any of, of your act, or would you just talk to the crowd? Um, it was a bit of an act. It was an 18-minute pre-show that we, you know, um, Johnny Carson loved Dave so much, and it was mutual. And uh, when, you know, Dave got his show, Johnny had provided, in a sense, his producers, Freddie Cordova and all those people who were to help Dave and give him advice. And, and you know, Dave took it to heart. And they, you know, I think one of the things, you know, I don't know word for word what Freddie said, but, you know, get the audience in there. Um, don't, don't make them wait too long before things start happening. Uh, you know, 
set it up, knock it down, and then start the show. So the for- formula was Letterman, um, it would start out, I'd come out, welcome everyone to the show. And like I said, it was an 18-minute pre-show. We'd show a video, then I'd have them, it was about five minutes, then I'd have them for about five minutes where I would tell them sort of the rules when pretty much I was just a cheerleader. I wasn't, and I did a little material in there, very, you know, um, and then from there I would bring out the band and they do five minutes and then Dave would come out for three minutes and welcome everybody. And, and it was very nice. And, and then we'd start the show at, I mean, there was no one second later. It was at four thirty zero zero. Uh, the band would start, the show would start, and Lennon would come out there. And so we, you know, it was it was down to a science. It was such a pleasure to work there because everyone was so great at what they did. It was, you know, the cameraman Dave Dorsett was uh, Walter Cronkite's cameraman. It was the best cameraman. The the writers are from Harvard. The executive producers were amazing. The lighting person was incredible. I mean, every facet. Uh, we were in a scenario where it was very professional. Uh, Dave, of course, was amazing and brilliant and 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 loyal. And we had a, you know, we had a, we had a family there. It was really really nice, and uh, it, it was fun. Now, when you performed like that, especially the first time, did you also have to do warm up that night? And and was that? I mean, or did you? They give you that night off because you were performing. Well, they did. They gave me the night off and said, you know, just be ready for the the show and hang out backstage and then after that after the show was over they said you know what i'd like you to, to do the warm-up even when you perform um uh again because i did the show altogether 10 times so the second time i did the show i didn't tell the audience that i was also going to be on the show um i just did the warm-up and when i came out you can see there and say oh that guy you know and then but then i decided to tell the audience I, by the third appearance that I also was going to be on the show tonight, and and it just made it really nice and easy. They they liked me, quote unquote, liked me because you know I, I had a lot of fun with them before the show started, and I'd come out and set it up and knock it down, and they were very supportive. So it really turned out okay. And when I was booking the show years later, it was so interesting because I would have like three jobs. I'd be I'd have to warm up the audience. I had to produce the segment, which you know was a, a lot of work, and then I had to, and then I had to do stand-up. So I had like three jobs, and then occasionally, when Alan Coulter, the announcer, would be sick or or be maybe a Jewish holiday or for whatever reason he couldn't show up, I'd get to do the opening announcement when the show started, and that was one of the biggest thrills from New York, the <laughs> greatest city in the world. You know, it was. Oh, it was thrilling. In fact, the first time I ever did it, um, it I was so excited to hear the band playing behind me and the crowd cheering. And the at the end of the show, the director said, now that was very good, but we're going to have to re-record it because you're so excited. You sound like you're five years old. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I, I learned to, to relax a little bit more when I did it. Now, but the, the, first, the first few times you were on the show... Did someone, did Morty or did someone go over your material and did they say, you know, do this or do that? I mean, how does that work? How did you structure your every material? Time. Even as, every even time. as, even Morty, as you Morty got... wasn't there when I, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, easy, even as you got down the road and you were a veteran and you died 10 times, they would still go over your material. What do they do when they go over your material? Yeah, well, you know, there's, 
first of all, the network television show, and they have sponsors and their standards and practices. So when I did the show before I was booking it, you know, the the producer, Zoe Friedman at the time, she would go over the set and have to get it approved by the executive producers and have it uh, approved by standards and practices. And so we pretty much knew what we were going to do, you know, in advance. And um, when I was booking the show, the same thing, even though I was booking it, um, you know, I had to get bring it to the producers and have them approve it and prove the material and standards of practices and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so it didn't, you know, it wasn't like I could, when I was booking the show, I could say, well, I'm going to go on and then I'm just, here's what I'm going to do. I, I, you know, even, you know, we, it was a process that had to, we had to go through to make sure that everything was, was cool, was funny, was, a, you know, the kind of material that they liked for the show. And it was quite a process for it. And then, you know, when I was booking the show, I didn't have that many spots for comedians. So for a long time, I didn't do the show um, because I felt, you know, I, was, I guess guilty or whatever that there's 15 spots a year that, that year. And, you know, I've done the show and I have all these, you know, thousands of great comedians that I could easily put on the show. Um, I wasn't going to do a spot. And then Dave said, how come you haven't done the show in a while? And I was like, well... He said, do the show, you know, but you're, we work here, come on. And so I got to do it a few times when I was booking it. But again, I didn't just put myself on the show. I had to get the approval of the, of the execs and, and Dave and all, and the, all that stuff. But it's really fun. I mean, you know, there was, the, you had to, like, if you're having a sponsor, like I had one bit about a, a flashlight and I used EverReady battery and they, I had to get that approved that, they didn't have ever ready a sponsor or, you know, I remember there was Budweiser commercial and I never, I didn't make fun of Budweiser, but I said their name. So again, I had to get it approved in there. So now, now when you were doing the warm up, were you still going out at night and hitting the clubs a lot? Yeah. Nonstop. And, you know, we recorded four days a week. So we would do two, there was two different eras. One where we did two on Monday and we'd do the Monday and Friday on Monday night. And then there was another era where we were doing two on Thursday. So we do Thursday and Friday on Thursday night. And um, so every night, every weekend, I had a three-day weekend. So I would go on the road and do the weekend somewhere. Or I would just work locally and I'd run to comedy clubs every night and do spots or host events or do whatever. And then, you know, when I was booking the show, booking the stand-ups, I had to spend a lot of time at clubs looking at comics or working with comics, getting their sets ready uh, for the show, you know, uh, timing it out and uh, seeing what, what works the best and what should be in what order and making sure the comedians got to do what they wanted to do. But at the same time, the show got to approve what they got, you know, they got to go through what we talked about earlier. So, you know, it, when I was booking the show for a long time uh, in New York, I spent a lot of time actually um, working with other comics as opposed to working with myself on the weekends I would or we had like 10 weeks a year where we, we would have a week off and I would travel to wherever and do stand up and you know I no matter of all the booking that I've done in my life I still love stand up far and above any of that kind of work that I, I do with, with that I mean stand up is my favorite thing I've ever done in my life uh, work wise and it will continue to be that way. Now, 
did you enjoy going on the road? Because, you know, you were, you were getting stage time in New York. I know it's shorter sets in New York City and stuff like that. But did you enjoy going out and stretching your legs and doing the long sets? Yes, I loved it. I loved it, I, you know, to be able to really play, to travel, to see the world. You know, then, like I had said, in 1989, I started working in England. And then if you work in England, you get to work in Ireland. And then there was a, a great gig in Amsterdam and a great gig in Paris. And and then I then they it opened up to getting me to go to Hong Kong and Australia. And it was amazing. You know, I'm traveling around the world on other people's dime, um, doing what I love for a living and getting to, you know, I was a poor kid who was sitting in around dreaming of traveling. And here I am doing it and getting paid for it and seeing the world in a way that I never would have seen it before. Now, how did the crowds, what was the difference? Because there's got to be a difference in sense of humor. And does it take, did it take you a long time to adjust? Let's say, you know, because you know something's going to work in New York, but then you're in, let's say, London or you're in Hong Kong. How does it, how does it translate? I mean, I know funny's funny and humor translates, but when you're doing, you know, monology, when you're doing stand-up, you know, there's certain things that probably will work and won't work. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the key is to really write for human beings as opposed to writing for countries. Like, everyone has dreams, you know, like you go to sleep and you have your dreams. So if you do a bit about dreams, people in Australia get it. People in Hong Kong get it. It, it works out pretty good. The thing, one of the interesting things for me was when I first went to England, I, did, I realized how much pandering American comedians were doing, including myself, like um, getting applause for no reason whatsoever, like you know, like begging for like, hey, give, give yourselves a round of applause for coming out tonight or let's hear it again for the host. You know, all these things we would do. Hey, how about, you know, I would never do this thing, but you would see people go, how about the armed forces? Don't they deserve a break? Or, you know, things where you get these applause breaks for no reason whatsoever. And the audience is outside of the United States. They didn't put up with that. They hated that. They, you know, if you you were funny, you were funny. And that's what they, they didn't want you kissing their ass. I remember the very first line I had when I went to London and I was auditioning at the comedy store in London. I said, it's great to be here in London. And the guy yells out, bullshit. <laughs> it's like, and I went, all right, you're right. It's, it's a shithole and it smells like piss. And then they, luckily, for, it's not genius, but come back. But it's what I came in the moment, and they they loved it because it was it was the real it was real. They they hated that sort of kiss ass. Like they don't they don't really do introductions out there. They don't say you might have seen our next comedian on the Letterman show. Because, uh, the first time I ever went to the London, I went up to the MC, the compare as they called him. And I gave him my introduction. I said, you know, this is my credit. I didn't say this is my credit. I said, told him what he could say about me. And he looked at me like, what? Who are you? And and he didn't do any of them. And I was kind of shocked. And But luckily I did well. And I got I passed at the club. And they let me stay, go on every night that week. And I got finally got close to the guy who was the MC the first night. And I said, why were you so mean to me? He said, well, you came up and started bragging about your career. And I said, what? He said, well, you told me all these shows you did. I said, I was giving you my introduction to tell the crowd. And he said, what? Why would you do that? And he said, why would you set yourself up, you know, for failure? And if, you're, the audience, if you make people laugh, they're going to know you're funny. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess so. I didn't realize how much, like I said, how much we pander as comedians in the United States, how much 
applause we get for no reason as opposed to I love the I love that in Europe that they were more about the art as opposed to the you know pomp and circumstance that we created in the states. It's funny you say that about the pandering and the intros because it's true. I mean, I did comedy for a long time and I got out of it. And now I'll sometimes because I move back, I'll play some clubs, you know, and I'll host because I love hosting. But I laugh when people give these yeah. intros and sometimes they're like, you know. You know, they think because you're the host, you're just some newbie. And it's just so funny. When I would occasionally do it in L.A., people would go, well, this guy has some balls. I was like, yeah, well, I was on the road for eight years. But what's funny is with people with their intros, and you probably see this, especially because you were in New York, you're in New York, but people will just make up, like, they could be sitting in the audience at a TV show, and they'll say, you've seen him on Ellen. And it's just funny how people just pad their... And you see it on Facebook a lot, too. People just pad their resumes for the intro. And when you break it down, you're right. If you go up and you say, you know, you've been seen on Ellen and you suck, people are going to go, well, that's bullshit. But if you just go up like they do in overseas and just bring you on and you do well, people don't care. People were there to laugh. Yeah, because, you know, there, there are people who've gotten Comedy Central specials who aren't great comedians. They just happen to have maybe a good set that week in the... They work on their set, and I've seen a lot of mediocrity on a lot of different shows. Of course, mostly I've seen fantastic stuff. But, you know, there are people who have gotten specials who, they go, you know, that's in their intro. You might have seen this person in their own Comedy Central special, and that doesn't make them great. It just makes them, there There are people who are, you know, changing a little bit. There are people who are really great who have no specials who have not yet got their specials or maybe have never been seen by the right people to get their specials. So it doesn't really matter. So like you were saying, to work in, in uh, Europe, it was interesting. The, the the only odd thing I had overseas was working in Amsterdam. There was an incredible club called Tumler, which was in the basement of Hilton, the Hilton where John and Yoko had their bed in. And they had an incredible comedy club, and they didn't really want tourists there. They didn't. They didn't promote it because they had their own audience that would come every week, and they spoke Dutch. And uh, so, you know, but they, you know, English was their second language. So during the summertime, for two months, they would bring in British, American, Scottish, Australian comics, and uh, I worked. One weekend there, the very first weekend, I think it was in 2001, the first time I worked in Australia, I think. And I, um, it was very interesting because the, uh, the crowd needed to, you know, translate what I said before they, it took them a while. Like, I talked really fast, and my first show, it wasn't very good. The crowd didn't really, really like it. And it had been a long time since I had not done well. And the owner grabbed me at the end of the show and sat me down and poured me a drink and said, look, you're from New York and you talk really fast and this, you're not giving them a chance to really translate what you're doing. Take your time, be more physical, be more nonverbal, and you'll do fine. You're very funny. I, 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 I get it. So the next night I went out and like if I said I'm brushing my hair, I'm just making that up, I'd use the motion of my hand through my hair and I took my time, and the crowd laughed like, you know, it was night and day from the night before. And the owner brought me at the, at the end and said, see, I told you. So it was very interesting to have to be more nonverbal 
and that's made me a better comic from that experience. And it's one of the things I preach when I talk to other comedians about using, you know, foreshadowing and, and nonverbal communication when you're out there on stage um, to make the audience have to pay attention to you, to have to, you know, to focus on what you're doing. And they use a nonverbal, like, like you, you don't see me now. So like if I said to you, I was walking down the street and I saw a beautiful car, uh, you know, the old, no, I'll give you a different example. I said, I asked my mother to lend me a hundred bucks and she said, no, well, you know, we're on the, uh, you know, the airwaves and you know exactly what happened. But if I shook my head, no, instead, you, no one would know the answer. So in, in order for the crowd to understand what I was doing, they'd have to watch me. So I, I made them work a little bit. I make the audiences work a little bit by having, forcing them to watch me by nonverbal stuff. And then I look back at Jack Benny is one of the greatest of all time. He got his biggest laughs on pauses. So that trip to Amsterdam really took me to the next level of comedy performance. Now, you know, when you were doing warm-up and letterman, because how did you end up transitioning into the position of booking? Because that's, that's a pretty big responsibility, one. And two, it's got to change the way people act towards you because, you know, you're going to clubs, now you're the guy. How did that come about that you ended up becoming the booker? Well, you know, Zoe Friedman was booking the show, and she got an incredible opportunity to um, really kind of run things at, at Comedy Central, and she took it, and they were looking for a new booker. And at, by that time, you know, I had started working in 97. This was uh, in 2001, at sort of beginning of the year, March is when it, it, I got was asked to do it. Um, I was at the desk every commercial break with Dave, and we discussed, what the things of, you know, news of the day, sports, or talk about comedy ideas or whatever. And it was every commercial break for 16 and a half of the 17 years I was there, I was allowed to be part of that little incredible circle at the desk where I could, you know, talk to Dave. And, and we talked a lot about stand-up because, you know, I worked the comedy store in L.A. and he worked the comedy store in L.A., and we knew a lot of the same people, and we would talk about the different comics. And and then when Zoe was leaving, um, he, I got a phone call from one of the execs saying, Dave would like for you to uh, to book the comedians. And I thought, wow, that's going to change my life. And and then I said, all right, I'll do it. You know, what the hell? And, and it was a, a very, very big job and very intense. And when you say people look at me differently, I, I kind of understood it because I'm a comedian. And when I I want to get to know who the booker is, and I want them to like what I do, and I want to be you know have integrity and walk up to them and let them know that you know please hopefully get a chance to see what I do, and I understood that. And plus, you know, as a comic, I worked all over the world, so people from Australia wanted to be on the Letterman show, and people from Ireland wanted to be on the Letterman show, and I put a lot of people from internationally on the show. So now I had thousands and thousands of people who were buying for 15 spots. And that was the hard part for me because I had to say no 99.9% .9 of the time. I, it was very sad and it put me in a very weird position because these were my friends and these are people I worked with and people, you know, my colleagues and, and I couldn't make everyone's dream come true. 
and it really was hard because there were people who were, you know, judging me based on their own, you know, their own fears, their own whatever. They're, you know, creating this, you know, he doesn't like me because he hasn't booked me, which was not true. There were people I loved that I couldn't book because the show didn't, they didn't feel the same way I did about certain comics or whatever. So it was, it was interesting. And then, you know, it's, you know, there's part of me that wishes I never had booked the show because then I could have worked mostly on my own career and had gotten really far as a stand-up and done some major things. Um, and then there's the part of me that, well, this is how my life worked out and I got to book the Letterman show. And then, but I, you know, I had booked that comedy club in the 80s. So um, I was always very fair to comedians. I was always looking out for, for them. I was always bringing integrity into everything that I had done. So I was proud of it. So, you know, it's, I, I wrestle with the fact that if I can go back and do it again, maybe I wouldn't have booked the show. But then again, you know, I helped a, a lot of young comedians um, get exposure, have their big break. It, it was kind of exciting to be able to do that. Now you said, and, you know, there's a back and forth. Now you said there was 15 spots. Now when you have 15 spots, now is, does that include like, a Brian Regan or a Jake Johansson who does the show a lot, or are there certain regulars that are above those 15 spots? Mm-hmm. No, well, the you know, there was a difference between who sat at the desk with Dave and sort of did their act in a, in a sense with him. But the stand-ups, the people came out and did the stand-up, that's who I got the book. And I did recommend a bunch of comics who I thought would be better to sit down with Dave than do the stand-ups, because maybe their stand-up wasn't clean enough for network television, um, or savvy enough to be the kind of stand-up that they would like. Um, but also, you know, <clears throat> but they were just such great storytellers that they sat at the desk with Dave. It was really fun. Um, but, you know, the regulars were, were, there were some regulars, and the three main regulars were Jake Johansson, Brian Regan, and Jim Gaffigan. But then there were also regulars like Wendy Liebman, who pretty much did the show every year that I was there. And, um, uh, would come in and do stand-up like his friends like Jeff Altman or, you know, people like that. So they all were included in that. The most spots I ever had was 31 year, I think 30, 32. Um, uh, but, you know, and I put on a million comics and uh, it seemed like a million compared to, but I remember the last year, I think I had like 18 that I had booked on the show. And it's not that, I think they would just, I don't know how they came upon saying, okay, this week you have a stand-up and, but I would get people ready. And one of the comics, Brian Kiley, is one of my favorite comics and one of Letterman's favorite comics. And he worked at the Conan O'Brien show down the street in New York. So him and I would have a set ready. We'd, we'd get something ready. I did this with uh, Todd Barry, too, because he was a New Yorker. I think Mark Marin. They We would um, have a set ready. But mostly it was Brian Kiley. Because he would be down the street at Conan, and if all of a sudden the guest didn't show... Um, or was late, or the flight didn't was delayed, or didn't even make it. I'd call Brian. He had a suit hanging in his office. We had to set down. We got it approved by the, the show and standards and practices. And he'd come down the street and do this and do the show as a guest. So you know, I I was always prepared, and Brian got to do the show a lot because of that. Or I remember one time, uh, you know, Brian got called, and I said, "Hey, Brian, someone didn't show," and he runs down to. Letterman show, and he has the suit on, we have the material, we do the last minute tweaks or whatever that we have to do, we have to let the producer know, 
band know how the set's going. I mean, every it, it was pretty involved, much more than you would imagine. And then all of a sudden the show would run long or the guests would eventually show up and Brian would be like, oh, <laughs> he was all ready to go. And it didn't work. But, you know, he was still paid and loved and treated with respect at the show. We were, it was a very respect, respectful show. to the. We were very respectful to the guests and their needs and wants. And that was one of the things that everyone really knew about the Letterman show is that when they came there, they were treated like gold. Now, was there any comic in your booking time that, that you gave a, a shot and you might have been on on the on the edge, like, I don't know, and then he just came out and destroyed? Well, I don't think so because we, you know, we pretty much knew who was, you know, their set and who they were. And, you know, again, we had to go through all this approval stuff before they got on. There was one comic who I saw at an audition, his name is Joe Wong, who was from China, and I saw him in the club in, in Cambridge, Mass., and he was really smart, really, really funny, and his material was just perfect for the show. But, you know, he, he was very hard to understand because he had just moved from China. And uh, we worked together for a couple of years on his set, and he, you know, became more uh, adept at, at his English. And uh, when we put him on the show... He blew the roof off the place, and the next day, uh, Ellen DeGeneres called and, and hired him to be on the red carpet for her for the uh, Emmy Awards. Uh, Vice President Biden called because he wanted Joe to be on the um, correspondence dinner. The um, Ray Romano and Brian Regan's manager, Rory Rosegarten, called and said he signed him up to manage him. The Letterman Show signed him to a uh, two-year deal. It was really, you know, one of these things where, you know, saw this guy, just could see something in what he was doing, um, you know, brought him along little by little, and he came on and he just tore the place apart. And now he's a huge star in China. You know, during that time, the Chinese newspapers were contacting me and interviewing me about Joe and how I had found him. And Joe, you know, just became a huge star because of it, about his huge success. New York Times wrote a nice piece about Joe. And, uh, you know, we, him and I are in touch all the time, and he's out in China, and he's a superstar out there. And it's, it's really, it's a nice feeling that, you know, did this kind of thing together. And, of course, it was his talent, his material, um, but it was fun to be able to be part of it. Now, eventually you left the Letterman Show, and now you're involved with the uh, Great American Comedy Festival, I believe. Um, yeah, in, uh, in 2008, I was approached to... Um, by these people in Nebraska. I was still working at Letterman when it was going on. And about a festival idea that they had, and they explained it to me. And I told them that it was not going to work. I said, look, you know, it's a, it's a very, you know, they want to honor Johnny Carson. And, you know, they want, that's where he's from, Norfolk, Nebraska. And he's not born there, but that's where he grew up. And I said, look, if you give me a crack at it, I'll, you know, let me, let me create this festival. Let me, you know, write the blueprint, and, you know, I ended up creating this festival and naming it and creating, like I said, the blueprint, and I brought some of the greatest comics on the planet into this very small town in Nebraska where you had to fly to Omaha and then drive two hours from there, and most people didn't want to do that, but um, <clears throat> but we got them there, and then we, you know, and again, it was all about integrity and treating the communities with respect and, you know, making sure that they were paid 
um, that they had hotel rooms, that they were flown in, that money didn't come out of their pocket, that they didn't have to audition by paying me money. You know, I would travel around the country and the world and look at comics and see the comics I thought that would be great on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, who Johnny was no longer alive. So we, you know, I would put these people on and not all of them, you know, would have done. I couldn't get on Letterman. I would put not all of them, but the people that I liked, I got to put them on in the Johnny Carson Festival. And little by little, we we kept working on it and working on it. And I started creating more and more um, projects and bringing in some of the greatest comics in the world to where we got to the 10th anniversary last year. And um, I had Martin Short and, you know, Robert Klein and Dick Cavett. Then I had Caroline Ray and uh, Jake Johansson. And Jake, weirdly enough, had a uh, back out because he had this huge money gig then. But these amazing comics, Alan Hazy and uh, Dennis Regan. And, and I brought Brian Regan and I brought, you know, some of the greatest comics on the planet. Uh, Paula Poundstone, who's one of my heroes, uh, as I mentioned earlier. And this festival was just incredible and so really terrific and then this year we're getting ready for year 11 and i get a phone call going we're going to do it on our own we're going to we're going to book it on our own i went what i said you know there these are the local people and you know this um this kid i had never met before and the i met him at the rap party at the end he's going to book it now and i was like i what are you you know what are you doing this is a my baby, and you know, I mean, it wasn't like I did it all by myself. I creatively, I did it all by myself. But these folks, you know, they were very good in, in raising money, and they were really good at, you know, being a great community and treating the communities with respect. But you know, um, I had my team of professionals that I brought in to make this a professional comedy festival, and uh, all of a sudden, now, so this eleventh year is starting, and. I'm not involved. And it's like, what? <laughs> it's okay. You know, I wish you guys the best, you know, very disrespectful and very, um, and very odd. And they're making it to let the comics have no idea that I'm no longer involved. And a lot of comedians have been calling me and saying, Hey, we'll see you in June. I'm like, I'm, I'm not working on that one, you know? So it's like, it's really interesting. It teaches you a lot about the business. You know, you can be a really nice person and really earnest and really care and do all this hard work, but you got to remember to protect yourself. And I didn't, I figured these people were excited. We created, we turned that into Nebraska's number one tourist event. And, um, you know, so it's very odd that, that, you know, some people are not, you know, straight up and some people are just, not as wonderful as you would hope they would be. That sucks. Now, are you still performing a lot? I mean, what's your schedule for performing nowadays? Um, all the time. I just came back from performing at the North Carolina Comedy Festival, and uh, at the, I have a meeting today for a television show idea. I'm I'm working on two major television productions right now. Also, I, I'm also involved with some other um, comedy festivals. I help book the uh, Woodstock Comedy Festival. We're working on a major, major comedy festival combination with uh, mental illness uh, to raise money uh, this summer in the Hamptons. Um, we're working on that. So I have a, a ton of projects. I have seven major projects going on at once, but at the same time. So I'm not hurting because I'm not doing Nebraska. That's just, it's just, you know, it just was a lesson for me in the world. I have enough things going on. 
But uh, despite all of the things I'm producing, I'm still doing stand-up all the time. I'm doing a stand-up show tonight. I, you know, a show in New York uh, called uh, uh, Artists Without Walls. And it's, what it is means it's comics, singers, poets, uh, novelists, musicians from all over the world coming to New York City and doing this incredible intimate venue that it's one of my favorite shows ever. So, And I'm the stand-up on the show tonight. So, and, you know, I'll never stop doing stand-up. I love it with all my heart. That's awesome, man. You know, I want to thank you for taking the time. It's funny. Um, I follow you on Facebook. I, don't, I think I may have sent you a friend request, but I, I, I read your story when you did the um, a gig uh, up in, I think it was Massachusetts. I don't know. You got a limo, and it was for, I believe, a chemical company. <clears throat> And I said, it was a really good story. And I was like, i got to get this guy on my show. Just because it was, I know you're, you've been around, but it was a great story. So now, now, are you on Twitter, or how, how can people find you? Yeah, on Twitter, I'm Eddie underscore Brill. Um, on uh, Instagram, I'm Eddie Comic. And, you know, I'm pretty much full up on Facebook, but, you know, I'm under my name on Facebook. There is a fan page that someone created, but I'm so not, it, it doesn't, I really don't. I never really go on that. It's not because I, I, I mean, I, if someone writes me there, I write back to them and talk to them. But it's Twitter that pretty much go back and forth. And like I said, Eddie underscore Brill. And I'm doing stand-up all the time. And if you, uh, you know, see my name, please come over and say hello. Epic, come to the show and come say hello. You know, I've never, you know, it's interesting. The older you get or the more stage time you get, the better you get. And here I am, you know, at this point in my life, and I've never been more i've never had more fun doing stand-up and i've been doing it for you know th over three decades and i still love it i still love it i remember that show are you uh, for the dow chemical company it was one of the most incredible days and nights of my life i made a ton of money and all i had to do was like i had to, i had more fun hanging out with the people than i and i only had to do like four minutes of comedy it was crazy but I'm writing a book. I'm working on a book. I have 250 stories so far from my life, and hopefully that'll turn into a really wonderful book. That's awesome, man. I want to thank you. So people, go check him out. Follow him on Twitter. Follow him on Instagram. Go Google him. You can, you can probably see clips of his stand-up. Go watch it and keep going to your comedy clubs and support live comedy. Um, so, yeah, also people, follow me on Twitter. I'm at CooperTalk. That's at CooperTalk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 670 episodes up there. I'll be posting the very great Graham Parker in just a few days. I had a great conversation with him last week from oh London. Oh, my God, I love Graham He's Parker. awesome. And so people do that. Uh, you can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. And don't forget my other project, Go to the website, StopTheSalt.com. You know, when I had a health problem a few years ago, I wrote a cookbook. It's 120 easy recipes. No pictures to intimidate you. No long list of ingredients. If you don't have cumin in a house, don't worry. I have no ingredients. I have no recipes with cumin. You can get it at Amazon, but you can also get it at my website, StopTheSalt.com. And I make more money, and I'll sign it for you. And also, don't forget, I'm on Instagram at CooperTalk1. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water. Take your vitamins, eat your vegetables, and I'll talk to you guys next week.